You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. And we begin tonight with floodwaters overwhelming parts of the Chilcotin. Well, normally at this time of year, we're talking about wildfires. Right now, some in the ranching community are trapped in their homes surrounded by water. Aaron MacArthur reports. Hard to believe this is the Chilcotin in July. Huge trees ripping downstream, roads washed out. More rain in the last week has fallen than the region normally sees in six months. Oh, it's a 200-year flood. I've been here 30 years. There's people that have been here since the 60s. They've never seen anything like this. A flood warning was put into effect Monday on the Chilcotin River. High stream flows, likely on tributaries, the length of the river that flows into the Fraser. People are being warned to stay away from any fast-moving water. Our modeling indicates that the river will peak today and continue to recede very slowly over the coming days. Randy Sogstead has tried to stop the river from destroying his ranch, but he seems powerless against the force of the water. He wants to know when the government, both regional and provincial, will step up to the plate. Everyone is so mad, you know, we know there's not a lot can be done, but the roads could be repaired and you could at least come around and reassure people that help is on the way, that they're not on their own out here. The regional government says it's monitoring the situation. Meanwhile, Environment Canada predicting more rain for the Chilcotin Tuesday night. The flood concerns far from over. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. All right, well, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with a closer look at what is in store for that area in the coming days. Christy. Well, certainly more rain is on the way. We've got a major system. Now, bulk of the rainfall, thankfully, is going to fall across the south coast, and we'll talk more about that later. This area here is on the lee side of the mountains, so the, they could see another 5 to 10 millimeters in the next 24 hours, but not nearly as bad as what we'll see further southwest of there. After that, after the next 24 hours, it looks like both Thursday and Friday will be dry, so hopefully that will bring good news to that region. Right. Thanks very much. We'll check in later, Christy. The city of Vancouver is considering a number of changes that could make car sharing even more popular than it already is. Right now, you can't leave a car share vehicle in a metered spot, but that could soon change, along with some other new incentives. Nadia Stewart has more on the proposal and the concerns. In Vancouver, it is one of the most popular ways to get around. It's just more efficient and modern than most things. They're, they're everywhere, so it's great. Now the city of Vancouver is considering changes, allowing drivers to park car share vehicles such as ShareNow, Evo and Moto in spaces they've had to pay to use in the past. The changes would mean car share users could end their one-way trips in a metered parking spot. What's more, active stopovers would be allowed in these spaces at no cost to the driver. I think that's fantastic. I've been busted before for uh, parking in a metered spot, so I think that's a great idea. So it would definitely make me want to use it more. Parking permit fees for zero emission car sharing vehicles would also be waived and a flat rate would be introduced for reserved parking spaces for zero emission car sharing vehicles. In April, council approved a climate emergency report and the proposed changes are in line with recommendations encouraging green commuting initiatives that could also push car share companies to make a complete switch to a green fleet. 
A possible $200,000 windfall for the city is also in view, not to mention a break for the companies. This will just open up um, areas of the city that uh, allow people to get to where they're going quicker and faster. But there are questions about the cost of these metered spaces. The report suggests car share companies will foot the bill instead of drivers. But they are significant costs, so those are, that's something that we need to work with the city on. And at least one city councillor has questions about the impact on drivers who might not use car sharing, a service about one-third of Vancouver's residents rely on. What I want to ensure is that those car um, share companies are actually incented to turn those vehicles over and we're not going to create unnecessary congestion. A final vote on the proposed changes is expected this week. Nadia Stork, Global News. Coquitlam RCMP say speed and alcohol, not software or mechanical failure, were the key factors in a fiery crash involving a Tesla earlier this year. It happened back on March 18th. The electric vehicle lost control on Lowheat Highway near Alderson Avenue, bursting into flames. The driver was killed. Police say he had more than three times the legal amount of alcohol in his system and was traveling at more than 150 kilometers an hour in a 60 zone when the crash happened. Government, gaming and regulatory officials are remaining tight-lipped after one of the B.C. Lottery Corporation's top executives has stepped down. Rob Croker has resigned as the vice president of security and chief compliance officer for BCLC. Global News has learned the move comes months after B.C.'s gambling regulator pledged to investigate allegations that Croker told his staff to ease up on anti-money laundering efforts and allow the flow of dirty money into casinos. Croker joined the Lottery Corporation in 2015 after serving as the head of compliance for Great Canadian, a move that brought forward questions of potential conflict of interest at the time. Croker already stepped down as chair of the Justice Institute of BC last fall amid the controversy, stating he didn't want to distract from the school's core mandate. Global News investigative reporter Sam Cooper joins us now. Sam, what more do we know about this investigation? Well, we know that a complaint was filed against Mr. Croker in February, and the complaint says there was a meeting of Lottery Corp anti-money laundering team, and it alleges that Mr. Croker told his team to scale back checks on suspicious cash, and that this suggested there was pressure on BCLC's management team to allow dirty money to flow into BC casinos. So at this point, we know there's an investigation. The, the documents tell us that. However, BC's government will not tell us if they have moved forward in the process. The Lottery Corp will not explain the reasons why Mr. Croker departed from the company last week. So it looks like we will have to be learning this type of information at the inquiry that's coming up into money laundering. It's a question. We know that whistleblowers say they plan to testify the Lottery Corporation turned a blind eye to dirty money. And th this allegation definitely fits that category. I'm sure we'll get a lot of answers during that inquiry. Sam, uh, do we know if Croker got a payout when he left BCLC? That question, uh, it's a complete unknown. We have contacted the Lottery Corporation asking for any information around this uh, investigation into Mr. Croker, and they will not give us any answers. We'll have to wait for the inquiry for those answers then, I guess. Sam, thank you. Thanks. The mother of two young girls allegedly killed by their father was back on the stand today, and this time Sarah Cotton was under cross-examination. Andrew Berry has pled not guilty to the murders of his daughters. 
Sarah McDonald has more on today's testimony involving text messages between Barry and Cotton. Tuesday saw a second arduous day of testimony from a grieving Vancouver Island's mother at B.C. Supreme Court. As the defense works to show Sarah Cotton and her former partner Andrew Barry had a civil co-parenting relationship in the months before their daughters were murdered, allegedly by Barry. Court hearing lengthy transcripts of phone correspondence between the accused and Cotton, who was repeatedly pushed by defense to divulge she and Barry were having face-to-face communication prior to the murders. A narrative Cotton consistently denied. We were having email, text, voicemail and quick telephone conversations about the girls. There was no face-to-face communication. You're denying having face-to-face communication with Barry. Is that what you're doing post-defense? Yes, I am, Cotton replied, insisting the accused would not engage with her in person. We didn't communicate and that's how things got to where they got to. Barry is the prime suspect in the murders of Chloe and Aubrey, six and four years old respectively, on Christmas Day of 2017. Alleged to have stabbed both girls dozens of times before allegedly inflicting severe wounds to himself. Defense is working to show Cotton and Barry had an amicable relationship as co-parents to disprove the theory that Barry was harboring resentment towards Cotton, suggesting text messages between the pair were, quote, pleasant. I wouldn't call it pleasant, Cotton countered. You wouldn't call that pleasant? Well, I think it's hard to read into a text message. It's not unpleasant, finished defense. And again, after more correspondence was heard regarding scheduling logistics, defense suggested, you are still co-parenting fairly well? We're co-parenting, said Cotton. Defense also challenging Cotton's testimony, she was unaware the accused had no working hydro prior to discovering there was no electricity while dropping off her daughters to his custody for the final time days before their deaths. And yet you just drop them off, defense asked. Cotton, crying, responded, that's the biggest regret I'll ever have in my life. Another legal challenge announced today to the federal government's reapproval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Today, several B.C. First Nations launched their lawsuit. Our Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more on this. Keith, yesterday, an environmental group and today, Mm -hmm. First Nations. How is this going to impact things? Well, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this unfolds in the court system, Sophie. So yesterday, EcoJustice uh, submitted an appeal based on the fact that the orca population was going to be threatened uh, by the tanker traffic. Today, First Nations, including First Nations that successfully uh, caused the project to be derailed in the first place when they successfully argued in front of the Federal Court of Appeal that they weren't adequately consulted in a meaningful fashion. Uh, there's been consultation since then, of course, led to the current approval. But First Nations is arguing that was meaningless consultation, absolutely super official really didn't uh, mean much of anything. And in fact, there's a, a bias here, a conflict, because the government doing the consulting actually owns the pipeline now, a point raised by a number of First Nations leaders at a news conference today. We have not seen any significant difference in the consultation process. In some ways, it was worse. Slotith is therefore seeking leave to appeal at the federal court level. The federal government's decision to buy the pipeline and become the owner makes it impossible for them to make an unbiased, open-minded decision. 
Now, construction will likely begin sometime this summer or fall, even with this court case winding its way through the system. Interesting to note, though, Sophie, that uh, this project has successfully won every court challenge with the exception of one. And that was brought by First Nations saying they were not adequately consulted. The Court of Appeal federally agreed with the First Nations last year. We'll see if they agree again this time and whether the government's latest round of consultation is adequate enough to appease the appellate court. Probably takes some months to find out. All right. Thanks for that, Keith in Victoria. Surrey is trying to build on its past success of relocating the city's homeless facing a new challenge. It managed to relocate dozens of people living in tents along the Wally Strip. But there are several more living in a tent city located in a wooded, wooded lot off King George Boulevard. Grace Key has more on the options and why finding a solution won't be easy. This is where I stay. This is my campsite. They call the Surrey Encampment Sanctuary. About 50 homeless people are camping in this wooded lot off of King George Boulevard past 112th Avenue. And they're vowing to stay here until they get housing. These are about real people, real families and people that need help. This is my home. It's not a real home, but it's mine. I built it. It's mine. So I'd like to keep my home. According to campers, bylaw officers told them they would be dispersed on Tuesday. But the city says that's not the case. And they're working with several agencies to find housing. They don't care how they treat us. They don't care what happens to us. This isn't the first encampment in Surrey. Back in June of 2018, an estimated 170 people were living along the Surrey Strip on 135A Street before most were moved to modular units. At Vancouver's Oppenheimer Park, an estimated 80 to 100 people have set up tent. There have been calls to create sanctioned tent cities with basic necessities and social services made available to the homeless. There needs to be a better way of doing this than uh, what's been an ongoing problem for years in the city of people setting up camps illegally. It's an idea the Surrey encampment doesn't support. Then you're just in a glorified jail cell, okay? Um, then there's going to be all these rules and regulations and entrapments. But they are demanding regular garbage pickup, water and washroom facilities. The homeless people at the sanctuary say they're not moving until they get real social housing that doesn't include shelter beds or modular units. Grace Key, Global News. Right now, though, a prime piece of Victoria real estate has hit the market. It's just $40,000 and has stunning views of Wanda Fuca Strait. A lot of people would die to own it. And in this case, you have to. Kylie Stanton has more on the big business of burial plots. Steps from the ocean surrounded by large trees on a perfectly landscaped 11-acre property. We come to the grave of the Carr family. The neighbours are the who's who of Victoria. An added bonus, they're guaranteed to be quiet. It's the grave of Sir James Douglas. But a piece of real estate here is much like any other. All about location, location, location. It is a beautiful place, and I think many people resonate with that, and they, they want to be here if they have a choice. Or if they have the money. This online ad is offering up a pair of side-by-side -side cremation plots at Ross Bay Cemetery. The asking price, $40,000. Not surprised at all, um, because it's a very historic cemetery. It's beautiful. There are currently only seven plots available here, and the city only allows a purchase if there has been a recent death in the family, not for future internment. And so the only way of securing a spot is getting into the burial plot business. People have always bought and sold the graves privately, and that's definitely going on, and the prices can be very steep. This ad for one cremation plot is up for $20,000. The selling point, it's near the site of artist Emily Carr. 
but this isn't necessarily reflective of what's happening at other Victoria-area cemeteries. While plots are still being put up for sale online, they're only going for a couple thousand dollars, because unlike larger cities in Victoria, there's no shortage of space. We have about 32 acres left for development, so if we manage our space properly, we should be good for, you know, at least 20, 25 years. Simple supply and demand. It all comes down to just how badly you're dying to get in. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Well, the Chilcotin River flooding we told you about earlier is happening upstream from a major rock slide that changed the flow of the Fraser River. And it could complicate efforts to save returning salmon that are already threatened by the slide. As Linda Aylesworth reports, a number of factors are making it difficult to determine the best course of action. Nature never makes it easy for spawning salmon to return to their natal rivers. But sometimes she throws in a particularly hard curveball. It's pretty sobering to see it, uh, to see the site in person. Um, it is an enormous uh, impediment to fish being able to migrate. We know that there are some getting through, but it's a relatively small number. The Fraser River is the most important salmon stream in British Columbia, and the slide, which might have happened several months ago but was only recently discovered, is presumably an even greater obstacle to returning salmon due to flooding upstream in the Chilcotin. We flew uh, and saw the debris that that's been bringing into the, um, into the Fraser and, and that debris uh, makes uh, the acoustic monitoring difficult. Acoustic monitoring which would otherwise give them an idea of how many fish are successfully passing the slide-induced rapids. Today, the federal fisheries minister and provincial forest minister, who are working together as part of a unified response, visited the remote site, a 25-minute helicopter flight north of Lillooet. Well, I'm very concerned. Um, the, uh, the stocks that are going to be most impacted if we do not find a way to enable them to pass are Chinook, which are already endangered, and sockeye. What uh, would be ideal is if we could see river levels drop, which they're predicted to do in the next several days, and that fish could uh, naturally make their way through this barrier. But in the event they still can't get through to their spawning grounds, there are temporary measures being discussed. Catching and trying to truck or helicopter some of the fish up, up above. Of course, you're not going to be able to do uh, uh, a huge number of fish. All options are being considered but one, and that is to do nothing. This is the most important issue for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans in British Columbia right now. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Meantime, there is disappointment tonight for many flood victims in Grand Forks. The provincial and federal governments recently announced $50 million to buy up flooded properties. But as Jules Knox reports, many residents are just finding out they'll likely only be getting post-flood values. I want the cash that I paid for my home. This is where the flood was. After flooding in 2017 and 2018, Jennifer Howden doesn't have a choice. The city of Grand Forks is going to buy her home and plans to return the land to a natural floodplain. But she's worried she might not get what she paid for it. Recovering from the flood and trying to work, it's been a huge financial struggle. And if they're going to take away what I paid to have my home for, if they're going to take that away for me too, it's, it's a huge financial struggle. The city recently announced that it will spend an estimated $17 million buying dozens of properties based on their values after the flood. That's causing concern for many homeowners who say their property values have tanked. The governments of Canada and the province are both sticking to their 
position of uh, negotiations for the buyouts should be at a post-flood value. Mayor Brian Taylor estimates buying homes out at their pre-flood values would cost the city of only 4,000 people at least $6 million, which he says is too much for the tax base to absorb. As for how post-flood values will be established, the mayor says the city will hire a professional negotiating team that will deal with homeowners on a case-by-case basis. They would have experience in real estate. They they would have credentials and bondability. We're taking their houses away. It's a serious issue. Gary Blakely is worried his home will be taken away and he won't be able to afford anything with the money he gets for it. Our concerns is that we get like a decent, a fair market value for the house. We can afford to buy a, buy a place of similar quality for the future because we're on a fixed income, we're retired. Most of these people are going to end up going broke. Martin Menzies is worried people are going to get lowballed on their home's value with little recourse. I've told everybody that uh, before they do anything to hire a lawyer. As for when the buyouts will actually happen, the city expects it will be late this year through to 2020. Jules Knox, Global News, Grand Forks. Authorities in Winnipeg are investigating one of the worst mass poisonings in Canadian history. More than 50 people evacuated from a Super 8 hotel. 46 rushed to hospital. 15 in critical condition after a carbon monoxide leak. Global's Brittany Greenslade reports. It was an incident emergency officials say they've never seen before. 46 people rushed to hospital with possible carbon monoxide poisoning. Now officials say this could have been catastrophic and it's left many of the patients shaken. It's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> it's freaking me out. Some are going into ambulances and some are going into this bus and taking them away. 46 patients to hospital. Uh, 15 of them were considered uh, uh, critical. Five of them were considered unstable, and uh, 26 of them were considered stable. Patients were sent to multiple hospitals around Winnipeg. One man who has been released tells Global News he felt fine after the leak, but paramedics told him he was registering carbon monoxide levels much higher than most and needed to be transported. In the 1,000 to 4,000 parts per million range, uh, death is possible uh, within an hour, 30 minutes to an hour, and then at very high concentrations, over 10,000 parts per million, death can occur very quickly. The health authority was coordinating with emergency responders to determine where the victims needed to be sent. Winnipeg Fire and Paramedics engaged us. Um, we went. Uh, we were very active in working with them to ensure that patients got to the appropriate hospitals in a very timely and responsive way, and they are being treated and managed appropriately at those sites. Global News can confirm there have been no fatalities, and the health region says nobody needed intensive care services. Brittany Greenslade, Global News. Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien is in a Hong Kong hospital. Chrétien was admitted shortly after arriving in the territory and is now being treated for kidney stones. The 85-year-old was scheduled to speak at a U.S.-China trade and economic relations forum. He'll return to Canada after his treatment is finished. Well, it looks like those massive protests in Hong Kong might have achieved their goal. Hong Kong's leader says a controversial bill that would allow extradition of suspects to mainland China is dead. But there are still lingering doubts about the government's sincerity or worries whether the government will restart the process in the Legislative Council. So I reiterate here, there is no such plan. The bill is dead. 
Carrie Lam admitted the government's work on the bill has been a total failure. But she stopped short of saying it has been fully withdrawn, so demonstrators have vowed to continue mass rallies. Hong Kong has seen weeks of unrest with clashes between police and protesters. Italian police have released video of a mid-air crash in January between a helicopter and a light aircraft over the Alps that killed seven people. Tom Costello has the details and how to make sure the sightseeing flight you're taking is with a company you can trust. It was a beautiful chopper ride over the Alps that suddenly turned deadly. A tourist plane carrying three pilots learning alpine flying, crashing mid-air into the helicopter that had just lifted off. The chopper coming apart and crashing to the ground. Five on board the chopper dead, two on board the plane also killed. The video just released by the search and rescue team. It comes amid a string of accidents involving tourist aircraft. Six passengers killed when two tour planes collided in Alaska. Two chopper crashes in Hawaii, three dead. Five tourists killed in New York when their chopper went down in the East River. This is really buyer beware. You, as the customer, have to do your research to determine the safety level of this company because they don't operate at the same, more consistent, robust standards as a major airline. Search Google or the FAA and NTSB websites. Is the operator certified as an air taxi? Are the pilots licensed to the minimum standard or required to have more experience? Have there been accidents? If so, what happened? And if it doesn't sound safe, don't go. Tom Costello, NBC News, Washington. The self-made Texas billionaire who made two independent runs for the White House has died. H. Ross Perot passed away at the age of 89 from leukemia. Perot rose from Depression-era poverty to make billions with his electronic data systems company. His two presidential campaigns featured a mixture of folksy sayings and simple solutions to America's problems. His 19 percent of the vote in 1992 is among the best showings by an independent candidate in the last century. In Health Matters tonight, a B.C. woman is planning to launch a class action lawsuit over controversial breast implants. More than 20 cases of cancer have been linked to the implants. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, a local woman is leading the charge after being told that the implants were the safest on the market. Sarah Lovely is spreading the word online, encouraging women to join a growing class action lawsuit against breast implant maker Allergan. The more women that join this class action lawsuit, the better, because we need numbers. We need women saying, basically, this isn't okay. Lovely got Allergan's BioCell breast implants 17 years ago. They've now been recalled by Health Canada. At least 26 cases of cancer, a rare lymphoma, have been connected to the textured implants. The textured implants that are especially at the centre of this litigation were extensively marketed as a, a better product, a product that created a better feel with lower risks. Hundreds of women have now joined the class action lawsuit, which is yet to be certified. The class action is seeking compensation for women who received these implants and afterwards either developed serious health issues or have become concerned of the risks of even more serious health issues, including cancer. In August, the North Vancouver woman is going back under the knife, spending $9,200 to have the implants removed something she can't do fast enough. I don't have any symptoms of the cancer. I don't want to wait 
until I have a symptom to remove these. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. In other health news, Disney is recalling a popular toy based on the movie Toy Story 4. Disney says the plush version of the toy Forky has eyes that can detach and become a choking hazard. About 650 units have been sold across the country. Parents should immediately return the toy to the store. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. The Fraser Valley Fishing Lodge posted these pictures on Facebook today of an extremely rare catch. The Fraser River Lodge says this albino sturgeon was caught near Agassiz almost two years to the day after the same guide caught the same fish. The post says they believe they're the only two times the fish has ever been caught, tagged, and scanned. They told Jay the guide to buy a lottery ticket, and of course, <laughs> it was released. What you do with it anyway. <laughs> and speaking of rare animals, after the forecast, we'll show you why this race is going viral. And they're off in just a moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we saw some of the flooding up in the Chilcotin area. Obviously, a lot of rain in the north, uh, and some mm -hmm. coming here too, Christy. That's right. So I thought I'd show you a few more shots. Thanks to Dallas for sending them in the swollen Chilcotin River, and you can see very muddy as well. Uh, this area here is just on the lee side of the mountain range. Really, the bulk of the moisture will fall across the south coast and the coast mountains. Uh, as it makes its way towards this area, they'll get a little bit less, although they will still see the rainfall. But there it is pushing in right now, and we're starting to see it in various areas. By the end of the day tomorrow, this is the distribution that we'll see. Uh, east coast of Vancouver Island, not a lot. West coast of Vancouver Island up to about 40 millimeters and we'll see quite a range across Metro Vancouver. Some areas may only see 10 millimeters but I think the further uh, north you go towards the mountains out into Maple Ridge as well, those areas could see by the end of the day tomorrow 30, 35 millimeters, potentially up to 40. Here's the timeline. Really the heaviest rainfall will happen overnight tonight uh, and you can see this is at 3 a.m. Very heavy along the North Shore Mountains also on the west coast of Vancouver Island. But by the morning hours, so 7, 8 a.m., it really starts to break apart and change over to just showers for the south coast, pushing the major part further inland. So showers will be the plan for tomorrow. So that's rain on and off. But we still could see another 5 to 10 millimeters throughout the day tomorrow. So lots of sunshine to the north. Majority of the rainfall is Prince George South. And again, it's showers for tomorrow with a risk of thunderstorms. So heaviest rain overnight through about 7, 8 a.m. We may see pooling water on the roads, uh, large pools of uh, or large puddles expected. But then Thursday, Friday, and mostly Saturday look dry. So we've got a nice bright spot on the way, and that's great news for the Tacotan region as well. This was the sunshine earlier today in Whistler. We had that also, and then it clouded over quite quickly. Back to you guys. All right. Thanks very much, Christy. A weekend race at Washington State's Emerald Downs is going viral after being posted to the racetrack's Facebook page. Stand at the ready, and T-Rexes away. It's Dino. I don't know why this reminds me of a Halloween party two years ago that Sophie was uh, at, but uh, anyway, two dozen people dressed in inflatable T-Rex costumes, hoofing it down the track as fast as they can go. It's an annual event put on by a local pest control company. <laughs> Not sure how that ties in. We're thinking they don't get a lot of T-Rex calls. But regardless, it's always a fan favorite for obvious reasons. The prize for the winner, simply bragging rights. I'm sorry, wasn't that your birthday party? Oh, I didn't want to, I didn't want <laughs> to mention that. Birthday slash Halloween. Birthday slash Halloween party. 
That was a good time, though. Mm-hmm. I you should have seen it. Kim Kardashian over here. <laughs> <laughs> I just wear that T-Rex costume for fun sometimes. Yeah. Those T-Rexes look like when they were running, they had some sort of vertebrae issue. You see they had an extra <laughs> flopping yeah. around? Yeah. Maybe that's oh, why they're true. not here anymore. <laughs> that's true. Bad vertebrae, floppy necks, made them extinct. <laughs> some negotiating going on in the off-season. Yeah, well, they're still negotiating with Brock Besser, but they think this, they kind of said around the draft, this might take until the late summer. Hmm. I don't know. We'll see. They'll get it done. The uh, number of Canucks needing new contracts, though, this summer has shrunk to just two, if my math is correct, Nikolai Godolbin and Brock Besser. Today, three more Canucks were signed. Minor league sniper Reed Boucher, he's one of those guys who can score in the American League at will, but can't seem to score in the NHL. Also, defenseman Josh Tevez and Brogan Rafferty were signed. Either of those could see time with the Canucks this coming season. Boucher would only play in Vancouver if there were a bunch of injuries. Also, some sad news. The brother of Canucks director of player development, Ryan Johnson, died. Greg Johnson, a former NHLer, died yesterday at the too young age of 48. Tomorrow, the White Castle play the... Uh, Cavalry FC from Calgary as part of the Canadian Soccer Championship two-game total goal series. You would think the Whitecaps should win this series, given they do play in the better league, but expecting a Whitecaps win isn't something we've been able to do a lot this year. You'd be more accurate to expect a Whitecaps draw than a win. The Caps are tied right now for the lowest amount of wins in MLS with four, but they are appropriately enough tied for the most ties in MLS with eight. Did I know it would be so tough in, in our division? Yes, because at the moment I feel the Western division is the strongest one um, with the teams that are more consistent and winning more games. So um, it also shows and gives us a lot of answers of where we are, uh, what we need to do to improve as a club, and uh, it allows us to move forward. Women's softball is back in the Summer Olympics for next year after not being in in 2012 or 16. And on August 25th, one of the qualifying events for the 2020 tournament will be held at Softball City in South Surrey. So consider the annual Canada Cup tournament at Softball City an excellent warm-up event, especially for Canada, who has a very good shot at being one of the six teams at the Summer Games next year. Team Canada's never been in a better position to do damage in the batter's box than right now. Our women's softball team ranked third in the world heading into the busiest summer they've ever had, and the goal remains the same. Uh, getting on the podium is always the goal, and now the goal is to win gold. Um, before, I don't know that we could say the goal was to win gold, and now with the strides that our program has made collectively and individually, um, we, we can say that, you know, gold, gold is in our grasp. In years past, our national team relied heavily on the strong international competition offered up by the Canada Cup, with a few select games against the Americans sprinkled in to help keep their game in check. But in order to maintain that elite level and beyond, Team Canada knew they had to play more games against the best in the world. So this summer, they're playing in the National Pro Fast Pitch League against powerhouse teams like the U.S., China, and Mexico. We knew that night in and night out, you have to show up and play, and that's exactly the environment we wanted to be in. The entire plan going into 2019 was, let's play in the Pro League, where we know that every night that we step on the field, we're going to be tested by good competition. That competition starts with the Canada Cup, then on to the Pan Am Games later this month, before ending the summer back at Softball City in August for the Olympic qualifier where two berths for the Tokyo Olympics are up for grabs. 
to be standing here saying that I could potentially be a two-time Olympian, I would have never thought in a million years I could be able to say that. I think understanding that we have a chance as a team to qualify to go to another Olympics, and that's our main mission. Every single outing is finding ways to get better. So it's really just trying to inspire the younger generation to know that there, it will be back in 2028, 20, and it'll be in L.A. So it's like, how can we let these young women know how Team Canada plays to give them that sense of fire to know that in eight years, like, this is something that I want to do. I want to compete for an Olympics, and they'll have that opportunity, and we kind of want to pave the way and show them how it's done. I just challenge each and every girl that is young and aspiring to be an Olympian that they stick with it and they hang in there because you're going to get a chance if you just kind of see it through. Serena Williams, Allison Risk, Wimbledon. Oh, that's not Serena-like. She fell behind 3-1 in the first set. However, she would rally to win the first set, 6-4. Second set, though, Risk shows some skills of her own and wins the second set, 6-4. Third set now. This is a great rally. I don't need to say anything. Just watch. Great point for Serena. Think that rally was good? Well, this one's pretty good too. Too much. Serena, she wins in three sets and is off to the semis. All right, to the Major League All-Star game in Cleveland. Michael Brantley at the plate for the American League. This is a double. Get to the fence. Alex Bregman's coming around. Can he score? Yes, standing up, incidentally. 2 nothing now in the six. Look at that. Tour de France. Today was the fourth stage, uh, relatively flat. Julien Alaphilippe. Yellow jersey, still has yellow jersey after today's stage, although he didn't win it. Ilia Viviani of Italy in the blue on the right side, won it. Michael Woods of Toronto is 10th overall. He is 51 seconds behind Alaphilippe. There you go. Coming up on ET Canada, Kiefer Sutherland's at the Calgary Stampede to talk about his rodeo past and his latest album. And the Rec Laws are here to help us announce some CCMA nominees. All of that is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right. Thanks very much, Cheryl. Well, the annual insanity known as the running of the bulls is underway in Spain, and already two American men have felt the pain. That's right. They both ended up in hospital, one coming within inches of death, and both are talking about it. From his hospital bed, Jamie Alvarez shows us the video selfie he was filming. Amazing. Recording the exact moment a rampaging right bull attacked him in the Pamplona arena. See, and that's where I got hit. His phone camera going wild. He'd been badly gored, the bull's horn actually piercing his neck. I just felt the impact. It was like a car or a truck just hitting me. He'd entered the world-famous running of the bulls on a whim during a family vacation. He thought he'd successfully completed the race. In fact, medics say it could have been the end for him. But they said if the horn had gone back, I probably would be dead. A local newspaper shows another American, Aaron Frolicker from Florence, Kentucky, and the bull that left him hospitalized as his brother looked on. He was right on me real quick. 
he did scare me. He, he, I mean, that's the whole reason for the run, I guess. Back home, their dad, not entirely sympathetic. I guess, you know, it's two knuckleheads. That's all I got to say <laughs> that, uh, you know, decided to get on a plane and go to Spain. There are many who criticize the tradition made famous by writer Ernest Hemingway. Longtime runners say the bulls are getting quicker, none of which appears to dissuade these men from taking part. Hopefully I'll be coming back doing it again next year. It was amazing. It was amazing and then horrible. <laughs> so which part's amazing? Insurance cover that? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, you went to an insurance company and go, yeah, I'm just going to go to Pamplona. Yeah, I'm going to run with those bulls. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can I get some insurance? You know, no, I don't covered. think so. Yeah. I think How much do you get if a horn goes in your neck? <laughs> While you're selfing yeah. yourself at the bull. Okay, anyway. I think the guy's dad characterized it pretty well. Yep. Uh, okay, let's have a look outside. Uh, last call on weather here. Sure. So uh, heaviest rain overnight through the early morning hours. So if you're up early, you may certainly see some slower um, uh, roads because of the pooling water and things like that. Although there isn't a lot of traffic these days, but uh, we could certainly see some uh, slower traffic tomorrow morning for your commute. Easier in the afternoon, but still showers. And then the sun comes back, which yeah. is nice. All right. Thanks for watching. Have a good night. Good luck to all those cyclists.